you heard Michael, now be attentive. <laughs> so, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? Philosopher George Berkeley wrote in 1734, the objects of sense exist only when they are perceived. The trees, therefore, are in the garden no longer than while there is someone by to perceive them. In 1884, the magazine Scientific America answered the question this way, the falling of the tree or any other disturbance will produce vibration of the air if there be no ears to hear, there will be no sound. Albert Einstein reportedly asked one of his fellow physicist friends, say that three times fast, whether he realistically believed that the moon does not exist if nobody is looking at it. And his friend answered that no matter how hard Einstein may try, he could never prove that the moon does exist. All of these are anthropocentric ways of looking at the world. A worldview that says that humans are the center of all things. Humans are supremely important. And that our perceptions are preeminent. Well, on the other hand, we, you and I, as believers in Christ, we have a theocentric view that places a sovereign God at the center of all things, which leads us to a Christocentric worldview in which Christ, as the one in whom the fullness of God dwells in bodily form, He is the center, and in all things, He is preeminent. Now, this is what this means for Palm Sunday. As we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, Amid the waving of the palm branches and the shouting of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. It means that Jesus is King, and he's not only King when humans perceive or acknowledge him to be King. Now, if I could be blunt, may I be blunt? May I be blunt? All that is to say that Jesus doesn't need you to acknowledge him to be King in order to be king. He just is king. And his being king has implications for our lives. Not just when we proclaim him king and crown him with many crowns, but every day he must be king. Jesus was just as much a king in the wilderness when he did not look very kingly, famished, and weak after 40 days of fasting and being tempted by Satan. But he was just as much king then as he was when he rode into Jerusalem in triumphal entrance in the desert, being tempted by Satan. We see what kind of king Jesus is and what he requires of you and me as our king. We see in the desert that Jesus is not the king of cheap salvation. Jesus will not hide the cost of having him as king from us. And it won't always be easy. It won't always be comfortable to have him as king. And we need to know that. It may not be easy 
to submit our lives to King Jesus on a not-so-easy road, but it will always be worth it. And so as we submit to him, he'll provide real bread to sustain us and his love to assure us and his patience and peace to enable us to wait on his perfect timing. That's what I hope we'll see this morning as we return once again to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses. So if you have your Bible open, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And when you found your place, I want to ask you to stand so that we might hear, read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who we see you to be in this passage. And we pray, Spirit of God, that you would give us understanding of this moment of of monumental importance in your life and the implications it has for our lives. Teach us, Lord, what it means to have you as king, and what it means to serve you faithfully as king. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Whenever we begin to talk about the kingship of Jesus, we've got to realize that he is not a pitiful king. We talk about the kingship of Jesus, we've got to realize that he is a powerful king who must be obeyed. Look in verse 10. Whatever you might think about this passage, after these three recorded temptations have come to an end, Jesus says, be gone, Satan. Be gone. That's kingly speech, isn't it? Especially if you say it with a British accent. Be gone. That's what kings say. And so King Jesus commands, and look at the result in verse 11, then the devil left. See, Jesus commanded, and the devil had to obey. Jesus utters the same command in Matthew chapter 16. There he begins to show the disciples that he's got to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer there, and there he is going to die. And Peter takes him aside. 
And he begins to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So just as Satan tempted Jesus to turn away from the plan of God for his own life, so Peter here does the same thing. And Jesus turns to Peter and with the same commanding voice said, Get behind me, Satan. Same Greek word literally. So it means, Go away behind me, Satan. Get away. Get out of my way. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so we see a pattern in the life of Jesus. The commanding power of King Jesus flashes forth when the focus is on the things of man and not the things of God. His commanding power flashes forth when any attempt is made to thwart God's plan by offering a competing plan. And that's what Peter's doing in his rebuke. No, Jesus, not this plan. Here, here's another plan. And that's what Satan does in each of the temptations that we see before us. He, he offers a competing plan. And the insidious reality of each temptation of Satan is that each competing plan is so very close to God's good plan. The insidious thing about the temptation of Satan is that his competing plan is so close to God's good plan. They're not drastically different from what Jesus is going to do anyway, but they're not God's best. And they're different enough, these temptations, that if Jesus were to give in to them, it would literally change the course of human history. So Jesus, he doesn't mess with them. If he were to, Satan would retain his power over people. The power of death. Satan would retain his fear factor. Inspire in people a fear of living in this world. And we're afraid of living in this world, aren't we? We're afraid because of disease and destruction and bombs that come in a package to our home and shootings in school. We're afraid of dying. So we're afraid of living in this world and we're afraid of dying. And so had Jesus given in, people would remain chained up in fear. And so Jesus must and he does use his kingly power not to Give in to the lesser competing plan of Satan. And you and I have to guard against the lesser things to which Satan tempts us, the one who masquerades as an angel of light. Watch for his subtleties. Be on guard against trading God's best for what we can justify as good, and no one could lay a finger on us. And we do that when we make spiritual arguments for doing what we want to do, which is usually the easy thing to do. And we talk about the ways the Lord could use this thing we want to do. But we know that we're not always being honest. We know that we might just really be attempting to Avoid the difficult thing on that not-so-easy path. We want to live comfortably 
in a way that doesn't cost us too much. But that's because we don't see how beautiful and how amazing and how extraordinary the not-so-easy, not-so-comfortable thing can be. But see, Jesus could see those things on the other side of the temptation. And so he was able to stand against them. And that's how we stand against them. So let's look at these temptations. The first one is in verse 3. And we see here that Jesus will give us real bread to sustain us on a not-so-easy path. The devil says to Jesus, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. So the temptation is so close to what Jesus is going to do. Think about this. Jesus' mother, Mary, when she's expecting Jesus, goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, who is at the same time expecting John, the one who will baptize Jesus. And when, Mary, and when Elizabeth hears the sound of Mary's voice, John, her baby, leaps inside of her, and she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Mary bursts out into this song of praise, this song that describes what, how the world will benefit from her son. And, and this is what she sings. His mercy is for those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has filled the hungry with good things. Did you hear what she sang? Before Jesus is born. The Holy Spirit tells Mary that Jesus will fill the hungry. That's what Jesus is supposed to do. That's the way Jesus will bless the world. This temptation then, this competing plan is so close to God's plan. After the temptations are over, Jesus is going to take five small loaves of bread. And he's going to use his miraculous kingly power. And with those five small loaves of bread, he's going to feed 5,000 men, not including women and children. After that, on another occasion, he's going to take seven loaves, and he's going to use his miraculous kingly power, and he's going to feed 4,000 men, not including women and children, with that bread. The temptation, the competing plan is so close to God's best. In chapter 25, Matthew records these words of Jesus. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? And the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Feeding the hungry is sometimes the thing that Jesus wants his disciples to do. And for doing this, but not only this, Jesus the king says, come inherit inherit the kingdom prepared for you. The temptation, the competing plan is so close to God's best. So why would it be sinful for a hungry Jesus to turn stones into bread because it would be using his kingly power to serve his own needs. And that's not why Jesus, why God sent Jesus into the world. And that's not why Jesus agreed to come. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, he who is the bread of life, as a ransom 
for many. In fulfilling that purpose, in serving others instead of himself, Jesus would fulfill the plan agreed upon between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. In fulfilling that plan, Jesus would experience the provision of God. In fulfilling that plan, his Father will sustain him even though in that difficult moment, Jesus is still hungry. And so Jesus summons his kingly power, which is contained in his own word. And quoting scripture, he says to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is not going to reduce the glory of the Lord and his good purpose to mere physical bread and satisfying physical hunger. Because the Father promises so much more than that. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to be some of those evangelical Christians who see the homeless and the hungry and say, oh, go be warm and well-fed, and then do nothing about it. No. The temptation, though, is to be satisfied when we have only given them physical bread to eat. When we are satisfied with this lesser bread, we don't look for the bigger, more beautiful, extraordinary, beyond this world, eternal things of God. When Jesus was sitting with that Samaritan woman at the well, when he was giving her living water, when she was in that moment being transformed, his disciples came to him with food because they knew Jesus was hungry. That's why they left him there to go get food. And they offer it to Jesus and and he refuses it. And they're like, well, you're supposed to be hungry. And what does Jesus say to them? I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The work of God is real food. The work of God is real bread. And the temptation for us is to be satisfied with lesser bread, with stuff. If only Jesus would turn the stones into bread then life would be so much easier, so much more bearable. Hunger would be assuaged. But that's not why Jesus came into this world. And that's not why he called you and me to make our lives easier. That's not why he came. He came for more than that. He called us to more than that. He has given us A capacity for so much more than that. For things that will feed our souls. Kingdom things. Eternal things. Beyond us things. Things that make us wonder. Is this what the Lord did? Is this how the Lord sustained? Is this how the Lord provided? This is real bread. And sometimes those things require sacrifice. And they require that we serve instead of being served. And it may be true in our lives that we never get served. Are you prepared for that? That's tough, isn't it? A not-so-easy road when you're always serving and never the one served. But it's what our king may require. So on this Palm Sunday, when we celebrate King Jesus, let's not be tempted to satisfy ourselves with just bread. Let's be satisfied only with the kingdom 
things of God. It might cost us. Because remember, Jesus is not the king of cheap salvation. But our Father will sustain us with real bread, just as he sustained Jesus in the wilderness. Now let's move to the next temptation. Let me just assuage your anxiety. The next two are not as long as the first. We see that not only does King Jesus give real bread to sustain us on the not-so-easy path, he also gives us his love to assure us on the not-so-easy path. Look in verse 5 at the second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle. The temple said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written he'll command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now look, Satan is a quick study. If Jesus quotes scripture to him, then he'll quote scripture back to Jesus. And maybe in that way, he'll convince Jesus to go along with his competing plan. You can justify lots of sinful behavior if you take Scripture out of context. <laughs> Did you know that? Have you done that? Oh, yes, you have. <laughs> so have I. If we don't consider the whole counsel of God, Satan does indeed quote Scripture, Psalm 91. But Scripture also says in Psalm 19, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. See, presumptuous sin is what jumping would be. Jesus placing himself in mortal danger for no reason other than to prove to himself that his Father loves and cares for him. That's really the temptation here. If the devil can drive a wedge, if the devil can drive a wedge into the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son, he wins. If Jesus doubts the closeness of that relationship, then Satan wins. It would be easy in this moment, then, to give in to that temptation. Perhaps after 40 days, alone, in the wilderness, fasting, being tempted by the devil, and knowing that it's the Spirit that led him to that place, for that purpose. It's possible the human part of Jesus did not feel very loved or cared for. It's possible that he did not feel like he was in a special relationship with the Father. And so the easy thing for him to do in that moment of weakness would be to prove to himself. And then to prove to Satan, yes, the Father loves me specially. He could have jumped. And the angels of God would have saved him. And just think of how he could have justified that behavior. Well, I jumped, and so now Satan knows who I am. Now he'll give up. Now he'll release his, regret, his grip because he knows that I'm the greatly loved son of God, and he's a defeated enemy. So how easy to jump and then justify it. And think of how spectacular his jump would have been. Unless the jumping was done in the middle of the night, when the streets of Jerusalem were deserted, imagine the number of people on the crowded streets of Jerusalem who would have seen what was happening. The people would have watched in awe as Jesus came soaring through the air, only to be caught up by the angels. Additionally, a Jewish tradition at the time read, 
when the king, Messiah, reveals himself, then he comes and stands on the roof of the holy place. So imagine if he stood on the roof and then jumped from the roof and then was scooped up by angels. Imagine if I jumped from this pulpit right now. If I, climb, if I could climb all the way up here and, and, and jump off. This saying might have been far from the mind of Jesus, but it, it doesn't matter. It existed. The people would have seen him jump, and that would have been a far easier way of establishing himself as the Messiah than going to the cross. And so in that way, he could have justified a personal need to affirm the Father's love, but Jesus did not. Because remember, he is not the king of cheap salvation. He did not come for himself to meet his own needs, to require that the Father prove his love and care. Jesus rests in his special relationship with the Father and has no need to test it. Jesus says in John 3, 35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. And in John 5, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For this Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. The temptation is in the moment of suffering, in the moment of weakness, in the moment of human frailty to doubt that relationship. So Jesus answers Satan with these words, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And neither should we. Satan would love to drive a wedge between the relationship you have with the Father through Jesus the Son. He would love for you to doubt that that's a special relationship. He would love for you to doubt that God loves you. To doubt that when God looks at you, He looks at you through the perfection of the Son. Have you seen those crazy filter apps on phones? Have you seen those? You take a picture of yourself and it does stuff to you. I can't believe I'm using this as a comparison. But it's like Jesus is a perfection filter. That's what it's like. God looks at us through the filter, the perfect filter of his son. And he sees us as perfect in Jesus. It's easier to doubt than to believe something as amazing as the love of God for us. It's amazing, isn't it? Looking through Jesus to us and seeing the Son's perfection. It's easy for us to look at our lives and gather evidence to prove that we are not loved by God and that we don't have a special relationship with Him. In that moment, it's easy for us to demand that God prove to us what He's already proven in giving Jesus to die for us, and then feeling justified when God doesn't perform as we want Him to perform in order to prove Himself. It's easy, because then you can write God off and live how you want to live. Hmm. He doesn't love me anyway. But let's not take the easy way out. And let's remember that Jesus is not the king of cheap salvation. Let's do the hard work of believing. And keeping on believing and keeping on believing. 
and standing against every challenge of the Lord's love for us when we are walking on that not-so-easy road where it would be so easy to doubt on that not-so-easy road that God really loves us. On this Palm Sunday, as we celebrate King Jesus, let's be assured of and rest in the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us and the love that he has for us. And finally, this morning, we come to the third temptation. We've seen that Jesus is not the king of cheap salvation. He gives us real bread to sustain us and his love to assure us. And finally, he gives peace and patience to us as we wait on his perfect timing. Look in verse 8. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. I don't believe the temptation for Jesus here are the kingdoms of the world as Satan presents them to him. Instead, I believe they are the kingdom of the world as Jesus knows he can make them to be. How Jesus must long to remove the curse of sin from this world far as the curse is found. How he must long to make this world a place of perfect justice and perfect love and perfect peace right now. How does Jesus not give in at this moment? A quick bow to Satan and the kingdoms of the world, the greater kingdoms that Jesus knows he can and will make. He could do it right now. And it would be so easy to justify doing it, wouldn't it? Oh, look at the world I'll create. But Jesus is not the king of cheap salvation. What about the cross? What about the payment for sin? What about the access to the Father and eternal life beyond this life for those who so desperately need it? See, this is the God-ordained, not-so-easy road for Jesus. That's the road that he came to walk. It's not time for Jesus to wear the crown. Not yet. And so Jesus being king in this moment means not being king in this moment. At least not as Satan defines it. That time has not yet come for Jesus. And so Jesus says, be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And Jesus submits himself to the Father. To worshiping him. To serving him. And to waiting on his perfect timing. To taking the difficult path of pain. Instead of the easy path of comfort and self-protection and self-satisfaction. To have Jesus as our king. Means that we too must wait patiently and peacefully. On his perfect timing even when we are on a not so easy path. Worshiping and serving. While we wait, as we crown Jesus with many crowns in just a moment through our song, let's remember what it means to have Jesus as our King. Let's remember that He is not the King of cheap salvation. And let's remember the good things, not necessarily the easy things or the comfortable things, but the good things that Jesus has for those who submit to him as king.
and let's dream about the extraordinary things that King Jesus might accomplish through us. Those could be great things. Are you excited about the possibilities? And when those extraordinary things take us down a not-so-easy path, guess what? Our good king will provide real bread to sustain us, his love to assure us, and his patience and peace to enable us to wait on his perfect timing. That's what our good king does for us. And that's why we with grateful hearts crown him with many crowns. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word and for the truth of it. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did in the desert. Thank you for submitting yourself to the temptations of Satan. And thank you, King Jesus, for standing so strongly and so boldly against them because we know you to be the powerful king. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not give in to a competing alternative plan, even a plan so close to the one that you came. But you stuck to the perfect plan created before the foundation of the world, and you came and you carried it out, and because of that, we have salvation in you. You are able, because you are king, to save to the utmost those who come to you in faith. Thank you for that, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us submit our lives to you and to your kingship. Lord, there are difficult paths for us. There, Lord, are many in this room right now that are on a not-so-easy path path. Lord, that can be the path of temptation, to be satisfied with lesser things, to doubt your love for us, to to act impulsively, to do our own thing in our own timing. I pray, Lord, that you would prevent us from doing that, but open our eyes to see and inspire our hearts to believe the extraordinary things that you can accomplish in us and through us. We trust you no matter what path we're on. We look to you to provide real food. We look to you and the truth of your word and the inspiration of your spirit to know we are much-loved sons and daughters of the living King. Lord, and to wait patiently for you and your timing. Thank you as you do this in us and through us, Jesus, our King. Amen.